Many of us have read Max Lucado over the years, and so you've probably heard the story about Chippy the parakeet. But the story goes that one day uh, Chippy's owner was going through the house, vacuuming the house, and just thought it would be quicker if she just went ahead and reached in with the vacuum cleaner, took off the end of the vacuum, and just stuck the hose into Chippy's cage to clean things out. However, the, however, the phone rang. And so she turned just to answer the phone, but in doing that, she heard a sound, a sound something like, and Chippy was now in her vacuum cleaner. So she raced to open up that bag. Yes, back in the day when there were bags for, for vacuums, she ra- raced up and opened up that bag inside the vacuum. And in the dust and in the dirt, she poured out this poor parakeet. Well, to, to, to help him get all of that off, she thought she'd run to the bathroom and put him in the sink and turn on the water. And she did that. She got all the dust off, all the dirt off, but she had forgotten. She had just turned on the cold water. And so the parakeet, not only having had that traumatic experience, being sucked into a vacuum cleaner, being covered in all that junk, but now that freezing cold water had startled him. And so she thought, I need to warm up Chippy. And so she grabbed him and put him right in front of the hairdryer, forgetting it was on the hot setting, and blasted that poor bird with that incredibly hot air. Here's what Max Lucado says about that experience. Poor Chippy never knew what hit him. A news reporter through town, the word getting out throughout the town, found out about that experience. Apparently she had shared it and it went out throughout the town. And so a newspaper uh, reporter had called her and, and wanted to know a little bit more about it. And so she ex- explained what had happened. But then she said this afterwards. She said, You know, after this experience, my parakeet has recovered. But here's what she said. Chippy doesn't sing much anymore. He just sits and stares. Whether or not, or whenever we are in a wilderness or desert situation like the children of God were in Deuteronomy, we don't have to lose our song. And the good news is, if you, if, if you go just a few more chapters from here, there, they've been 40 years in this desert. It began with a song. You remember those songs of Miriam and Moses. It begins with a song, but now 40 years later, you get to the end, just a few chapters from this moment, and what do you get? You get Moses singing. It's a song, and a song that ends with these words, the rejoice of the nations with his people, and God will atone for his land and his people, they're still singing. Difficult time, a time of discipline, a time of struggle, but God has kept his promise, and they're about to get out, and so they still have their song. We're finishing our current sermon series, uh, Leaving the Wilderness, today. And some of you would probably think it's felt like 40 years of, of being in the wilderness, as long as it's taken to get through this series. But I want us to quickly review where we've been. Why did they have to go in the wilderness, and why for that long? They're there because, as we've said, God knew they weren't ready for the promised land. He knew he wanted to get them out of Egypt, but he knew for them to really enter into the promised land, he was going to have to do some things for them, but also in them to get them through. Again, the the exodus is not just about getting them out of Egypt. I love what a lot of 
uh, preachers will say when they, when they preach on this or teach on this time in the, in the history of the people of God, that the exodus was, exodus was not just to get them out of Egypt, but to get the Egypt out of them. And so he's doing some things in their lives in this season. He knew if they immediately went to the promised land, which should have been a short trip, they weren't ready and didn't have the courage, they didn't have the trust to take the enemies that were waiting for them there. And so whenever we find ourselves in a season of dryness or wilderness or desert, we need to allow God to do his work. That's what he does for his people here. And that's why they stay for a long season in that wilderness. But what is it that he gifted to them? To sustain them. It's worship. How important it is when we feel a dryness or we even feel separated from God or we're wondering why these things have happened to us. We have to be about worship. We have to be about holding on to Sabbath, to carving out that day of worship and rest. And then also we talked about the importance of having mentor relationships. You find that over and over again throughout the wilderness experience and it's part of what sustained them. And then for the last couple of weeks... We talked about what are those things that got them ready to get out. It's radical obedience, to follow everything that God has called them to do, to be all that he's called them to be, and then also to keep God's word. Last week, keep God's word before you at all times and his vision of who you are, and then allow him, as we said at the beginning, to do that work of preparation and equipping so that we get to the land we can be who God has called us to be. But there's one more, one more part we need to cover today from Deuteronomy 30, and it's really been the whole story of the wilderness. What ultimately gets the people of God out of Egypt, what ultimately gets them through the wilderness, and what ultimately gets them into the promised land? We still need to be about all those things we just reviewed. Those are the prerequisites for this, but ultimately we remind ourselves in God's word today, it's got to be God. It's got to be God who gets them out and who gets us out. It has to be a supernatural working of God for us to get out of a season of dryness, a season of being unsettled, a season of anxiety, a season of frustration. Wherever we find ourselves, it has to be God. And that's why it's a great day to remember that and celebrate it because today is Pentecost. Today, we, we not only remember and, 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 and celebrate that Jesus Christ is our exodus. He ultimately, at our salvation, is our way out, our way to our eternal home, uh, a, way that, a way in which our sins have been passed over as he has been the Exodus Passover lamb for us and so that we can be removed from slavery as they were removed from slavery and now from death because of Jesus Christ, the Passover lamb. But today well, we, we celebrate the sending of the Holy Spirit for the people of God, the third person of the Holy Trinity, the one who comes to bring to us the blessings and the benefits and the grace of Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 1, just before the day of Pentecost, Jesus is with his disciples and he's reminding them in chapter 1 again that the, that the Holy Spirit will come. And when he comes, you're going to have power in your life. As they had been powerless throughout the Gospels, you're going to have a power in your life and you're even going to get to be my witnesses. And that's where we find ourselves here today in our verse 6 of our passage. It's always been God's desire, not to just do something for us, 
but to do something in us. Verse 6 says it's always been his plan to circumcise our hearts, to do something in us, to remake us, to make us his, to do a work within us. It's not just about a destination, not just about a promised land for them or heaven someday for us, but it's about our hearts, and he can change us inside. And it's not only that he'll do something in here, but it's the promise that Jesus gave to his disciples in John 14 when he speaks of the coming Holy Spirit. My Father's going to send a helper. He says to them, I will never leave you as orphans. And then he goes on to say, my Father and I, we were, we're going to come to you. It'll be through the Holy Spirit, but we're going to make our home, our abode with you. This has always been God's plan, and that's what we see here. The only way to explain that the people of God entered into the promised land, it's God and God's grace and God's power and his presence. Now, we have to cooperate with God. That's what we've been talking about all these weeks together. But we cannot think it's us that got us out. If there's going to be real exodus in our lives, to leave behind slavery and death and sin in our past, it always has to be a move of God and God himself. And that's good news to celebrate as we close today. God has been with them throughout their entire wilderness experience, and we're seeing his promises now fulfilled. Now look, there are some days we may not feel that. When we're in a, we'll talk about that throughout this time together. Whenever we're in a wilderness situation or we're in the desert, we may not sense the presence of God. But that should not keep us from radical obedience. It should not keep us or make us settle for less than the fullness of God and what he has for us. I get it. When they were looking at the wilderness and seeing how dangerous it was and how barren that place is. Where in the world are you, God? How are we going to get out of this? How are we going to have provision in this? So I, I understand they might ask that question, but you, you go back to just the beginning of our passage today. Even when we have those feelings or those questions, look to God's word. That's why we've got to keep it before us. Verse 3. God is right there doing the restoring work. Verse 4, God will gather them back and bring them back. Verse 5, God is the one who brings them into the land. It's God. The next verse, and then on and on and on. Throughout this whole testimony of the wilderness, we see that God is active and God is present. You, you can't count the times that God shows up. There's so many whether it's on the mountainside and they're nervous about that, whether in, it's his, in his glory in the temple, whether it's a pillar of fire or a cloud by day, God is showing up again and again. And even we get hints of this day, Pentecost. If you go back to the book of Exodus in chapter 30 and chapter 35, Bezalel has the Holy Spirit with him or on him or depending on your translation, in him. And then you get to Numbers 11. It's not only Moses who has the Holy Spirit, but it's the 70 men of the elders. You get to Numbers 27, and it's the same for Joshua as well. The Spirit's showing up. God is all over the place. Or as Corey prayed today for offertory, he's in the midst. In the midst of all that's going on, God is in the midst. 
And that's, that's his heart. Go back to verse 3. It speaks of God's compassion for us. For his children then, and his, you see it in Jesus' teaching about God's compassion for us now. Even when we don't sense it, even when we're pressed, even when we're in the wilderness and we're struggling, that word literally means that God's moved in his belly. We've talked about that word before. He's moved in his belly for us when we're in this kind of situation. Now again, maybe we, we don't feel that or sense that. And so we, we, we won't believe that God's moved for us. Scripture says he is. Or maybe we're in a season of rebellion. Look, I just... I don't want God's leadership in my life in this area. I'm just kind of pushing back. I've got plans for how to get out of this, and I've got a way that I want this to go. He still will show up. Or maybe you think, and this can come to a lot of us, I'm not worthy for God to show up. He won't have anything to do with me. Verse 3 again, God is moved in his belly for the people who were in a wilderness situation. The biblical record says that his heart is for you, that he shows up all the time. Are you banking on him? Are you banking on his presence to get you through? My uncle Clay died several years ago, but I, I loved his stories about some of his adventures in college and in life. And one of the things he would do when he was young would, would be to go caving. And I think it was in Alabama or Florida where not just go into caves, but go underwater. They'd take scuba, deer, scuba gear and go underwater. And he talked about one particular experience where they were pretty deep, and they had gone through several caves, but they had kind of memorized it. They knew where they were, but they were really down deep, and all of a sudden, his air cut off. The gauge had been wrong. Now, he knew in his mind at that moment he was too deep and too far down in that cave to get back up to the top. He knew where to go, but he knew he didn't have the oxygen or the time. However, as he looked for his friend who had gone on ahead of him, he could no longer see him. He had no idea how far ahead his friend was, where he was. However, he knew that that friend had oxygen, which meant that friend had life. It's a split-second decision. What would you do? What would you do? The tendency might be like the people of God in the wilderness. I'm going to scramble and kick and go back to the old world. I'm going to go back to Egypt. I'm going to go up to the top. That's what I'm familiar with. I know the way out. I'm not sure where he is, and maybe we can feel that sometimes. I don't know if he's there, so I'm going to scramble and kick and get to the top. And if he'd have done that, he would have been just like the people of God who wanted to go back to Egypt. He, they, he would have not gotten out of that cave, just like those who rebelled and wanted to go back to Egypt did not get out of the promised land. Instead, trusting his friend was just ahead and knew he was alive, he made the decision. He banked because there was no turning after that. He went straight down further into the darkness of that cave to find his friend, found his tank, and he found life. The people of God were routinely tempted to go back to Egypt, to go scrambling back up that cave for comfort or for security, and it would have meant their slavery and death. How is that for you? Are you tempted uh, in your trying to make life work, in your dating relationships, 
in your parenting, in your work, in your planning for the future, um, in your retirement, in your marriage, in your friendships? Are you banking on God? Is he the heart and center and the life of those things? Is he present and in the midst of those things? Or are you scrambling and trying to make things work by yourself? God has got to be the center. He has got to be the one. Dive deep. You may not sense he's there. Dive deep and find him because he is your life. You want to get out of a wilderness situation. Yes, all those things we've talked about are critical. But it's got to be him. It's got to be us holding on to God. And we'll close with that. Again, we cooperate but we've got a bank on him. Deuteronomy 30 is clear. It just can't be us. And so our response to that then, and you see it throughout this book, you're just going to see it place after place in Deuteronomy. If we're going to bank on him and, and let him do it, that means we have got to hold on to God. You see that word come up throughout Deuteronomy. You see it in our passage as it closes here, chapter 30, verse 20. Love God, obey God, but you want to get all the way out of the wilderness and you want to get into the promised land, the life that God has for you, you've got to cling, cleave, or hold fast to God. You go back later, read 1019, it's the same thing. Read chapter 13:4, it's the same thing. They're about to enter the promised land, and so what gets repeated over and over and over to the children of God? It's got to be God. But you hold on to him. That word cling shows up over 50 times in the Old Testament. And a lot of times, we've talked about this a couple of years ago. It can mean that your tongue cleaves to the roof of your mouth or there's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. But 13 times, it has to do with God's relationship with his people. 13 times. And every time it's used, God is never the subject of the verb. It's, it's his people. You cling. You cleave. You stick to get out well, to get to the life God intends for us. He's there. It's a wonderful promise we see at the very end. God will be present and God is working. It's going to be God that gets us through. You can bank on it. But listen, as he's doing that, you hold on you hold on tight. There are three ways, and we talked about it a couple of years ago, but just very quickly, three ways that we do that kind of clinging in the Old Testament. First is, is what we talked about a few weeks ago, so I won't spend any time on it. You just, you just keep the commandments. And you see that playing out here in Deuteronomy 30. You hold on to what God has called you to do and to be. That's one of the ways that you and I hold on to God is by loving him with our lives and our obedience. I like what C.S. Lewis says here. People are told that they ought to love God. They cannot find any such feeling in themselves. What are they to do? The answer is the same as before. Act as if you did. Do not sit trying to manufacture feelings. Ask yourself, if I were sure that I love God, what would I do? When you have found the answer, you go out and do it. We cling to God, even sometimes when we struggle with feelings or worth, or whatever that may be. You hold on to God by your life. You hold on. By, that puts us in a position to be with God, our obedience. And then secondly, that word cling some of the times can be meant as adherence or devotion. It first comes up in 
Genesis chapter 2, when it says a man will cleave to his wife. That idea of loyalty, affection, and love. If you want to cling well to God, check your affections. We can have affections for all kinds of things. That's the goodness of God and his self-giving love that he lets us have other loves. He's got to be the heart of your heart, though. It's got to be God who has your deepest love. And when you give him your affection, that's one of the ways we cling to him is to check our love for God. And then thirdly, and this is a hard, it's harder to get the Hebrew mind on this. It's, it's deep desire. What's your, what's your deep desire with your life with God? Jeremiah the prophet in, in chapter 13 verse 11 says this, For as the waistband clings to the waist of a man, so I made the whole household of Israel and the whole household of Judah cling to me, declares the Lord, that they might be for me a people, for renown, for praise, and for glory. But they didn't listen. So he's not speaking so much to the function of this band, but it's clinging as a people. And the prophet goes on to say, and he's using every symbol imaginable in Jeremiah, and the prophets do as well, to show the closeness and the intimacy that God desires with his people, that he doesn't want to let us go. And so, again, the part of this word is not just about your affection, but what's your aspiration? Check your will. Is it my will? I want to do everything. I will do everything. My life will be planned around, I am going to cling and stick close to God. Again, going back to C.S. Lewis, nobody can always have devout feelings. And even if we could, feelings are not what God principally cares about. Christian love, either towards God or towards man, is an affair of the will. The prophets talk a lot about that. Did you know the presence of God is promised in all of the prophets but, but one? Just like the wilderness experience where you just see, even in a difficult situation, an anxious and unsettled situation, you just see God is everywhere reaching out to the people of God. It's the same with the prophets in a a similarly a very difficult time, and yet they keep talking about what God wants to do in the hearts of his people and the fact that he wants to be with his people. And when he comes, we cling. We cling by obedience. We cling by our deep love for him, that he is our first love, and we cling by our will. We will it to stay with God. God works in the wilderness. It's got to be God. God sustained him in the wilderness. He is so good, and you see it throughout Deuteronomy 30, of, of everything that he is doing to bring his people to where he wants them to be, out of slavery, out of death, and into a life with him. And he'll be faithful to do that for us, whatever we're struggling with. Wherever we are, wherever we find ourselves in the future, Deuteronomy promises to us, or God won't leave us. Acts chapter 2 on Pentecost Sunday, we're reminded again, God will not leave us. But also we're reminded he's going to do some things in us. God is with us. God is with us. Let's cling to him and believe that he is and live like he is. I'll I'll close with uh, many of us have been watching videos the last couple of weeks by uh, Ravi Zacharias. He has inspired so many of us by his writings and by his speeches. And he was talking about suffering the other day, and he quoted the hymn writer Annie Johnson Flint. Uh, Annie Johnson Flint was, started her life as an orphan. She was blind. She eventually had crippling arthritis and then eventually cancer, and that's, that's what unfortunately killed uh, Ravi Zacharias just recently. 
All those things counted against her, and yet Ravi, in talking about our human suffering, when we can really ask that question, God, are you present? And in that, in that video, he said, of course God is present. God is always enough. And as Deuteronomy has said, it's got to be God. Hear, hear this hymn writer's words. Orphaned, blind, basically crippled by arthritis, filled with cancer, and she says, when we have exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength has failed ere the day is half done, when we reach the end of our hoarded resources, our Father's full giving is only begun. His love has no limits. His grace has no measure. His power no boundary known unto men. For out of his infinite riches is Jesus he giveth and giveth and giveth again. Amen and amen. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of his Holy Spirit be with us now and always. And all of God's people said, amen.